KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, April 6th, helping large-scale events return to San Diego. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Scripps Health officials say the Del Mar vaccination superstation is again facing a shortage of COVID-19 vaccines. The site is now scheduled to close tomorrow and then again on Friday through Sunday. Appointments will automatically be rescheduled through their online system. The San Diego Convention Center is currently housing more than 1,300 migrant children. Of those, 198 have tested positive for COVID-19. Over the weekend, the shelter also accepted its first group of boys all under the age of 13. Lindsay Tozlowski is the director of Immigrant Defenders, a nonprofit that's providing legal support for the children. She stressed that if family members or sponsors of the children are undocumented, immigration enforcement will not be called. It's important that families know that they will not be targeted if they come forward to care for a child. For now, none of the children have been reunited with family or sponsors. UC San Diego says it will return to in-person teaching at its pre-pandemic capacity in the fall term. The school touted its return-to-learn virus response, citing the increasing vaccination numbers in the county. The school says COVID-19 safety protocols will remain in place as needed. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Financial relief could be on the way soon for San Diego's event industry, which has been devastated by pandemic restrictions. KPBS's Matt Hoffman says this comes as state officials are relaxing restrictions for private events that could revitalize the industry. We've waited our turn, but now it's time for our industry to be opened up. I do. After news from state officials that private gatherings like weddings and other events can increase capacity with negative tests or vaccinated guests, now a push to have permitting fees waived for an industry that has been crippled by the pandemic. The events industry brought 2.7 million visitors and $3.5 billion in spending to San Diego in 2019. Uh, 2020 obviously tells a very different story, but we are in a position now as we come out of COVID-19, as we come out of this pandemic, We have to intentionally support and help those industries that have been hardest hit. Supervisor Nathan Fletcher is hoping to waive some fees for events using county services, something that event operators like Laura McFarland say can really help. It's been incredibly hard. Um, I have an 18-year-old son who's going into college, and we've used his college fund to survive. So we're not sure how we're going to continue paying for his college. I've saved 20 years. Having these fees waived, when you're looking at, do I do an event, do I not? If you can save anywhere from thirty dollars to $50,000, that could be the difference of you deciding to go forward. McFarland also leads the San Diego Event Coalition, a group that since last year has been fighting for a seat at the table to negotiate safe reopening guidelines for large events. Our numbers are doing much better. We want a path back, which every other industry has been given a path back on the tier system. Fletcher's proposal will be taken up by the entire board and, if approved, could save 
saved the event industry a collective $2 million. It's just decimated our industry. It's really unfortunate, but we're ready to come back. Aaron Bianchi with Bright Event Rentals and the California Association for Private Events says the permitting proposal is good news and says the state allowing larger group gatherings is huge for the local wedding industry. Before it was three households, you know, no eating, no drinking for a reception. And that, you know, that's not the wedding that many people have dreamed of. Bianchi says many couples moved their weddings to Arizona during the pandemic as that state was more open. She says her and others have been negotiating event reopening guidelines with state officials for months. It's got to be economically viable for our, our wedding planners, our vendors, everyone in order to come back. It's got to make sense for them. The new guidelines hit April 15th. In the state's red reopening tier, private events can have up to 200 guests if they've been vaccinated or recently tested negative. Capacity then will continue to increase as our local situation improves. And that was KPBS's Matt Hoffman. Three weeks after opening a rental assistance program, San Diego city officials are still urging low-income families to apply for the money. KPBS's Melissa May reports. Applications for the COVID-19 Housing Stability Assistance Program have been open since March 15th. Today, Mayor Todd Gloria and other local leaders urged at-risk and low-income families to apply for the federal relief money. We have an $83 million fund available to help folks actually pay down that back rent, pay down those past utility bills, and get back on with things, particularly as our economy reopens. Councilmember Sean Elo Rivera calls the program the most significant assistance program in the city's history. He recalled his own childhood experience with housing instability. That really disrupted my education, my siblings' education. I know it created incredible, incredible stress and impact on my parents as they were going through their uh, own health and economic uh, turmoil at the time, which had led us into that situation. Today's event was held at Clark Middle School in City Heights. The San Diego Unified School District is partnering with the San Diego Housing Commission to help distribute thousands of flyers about the housing program at 80 schools that serve as meal distribution sites. Richard Barrera is president of the San Diego Unified School Board. As we know, over the last year, a student's home has also become the student's classroom. And so when students have to experience instability, when their parents are worrying about being able to pay the rent, believe me, it impacts uh, that student's ability uh, to concentrate on education. And that reporting from KPBS's Melissa May. Applications are still being taken at covidassistance.sdhc.org. Or you can call 619 619- Five three five six nine two one. Last week, President Joe Biden unveiled his $2 trillion proposal for rebuilding the country's infrastructure. It's meant as a boost to the U.S. economy as we come out of the pandemic recession. But the plan is also pitched as a chance to invest in sustainable transportation, with hundreds of billions of dollars for mass transit and electric vehicles. And that may sound familiar. San Diego County's transportation planning agency, Sandag, is seeking the same. Hassan Krata is the executive director of Sandag, and he spoke with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. Here's that interview. First, I'd like to ask for your reaction to the president's infrastructure proposal. What about it stuck out to you? Well, uh, it's bold. 
uh, and it's needed. Uh, I, I think uh, we, we've been waiting for a while for a national strategy for investment in infrastructure. As you know, uh, and, and you and I spoke about before, we were ahead of the curve in San Diego. We wanted that bold vision um, uh, to be here in the San Diego region. And I think as a region, we're well positioned to compete nationally uh, for this stimulus. And I hope it takes place and it's approved and signed by the president so we could get to, get to work. The American Jobs Plan, as this bill is officially called, includes $85 billion to improve public transit across the country. Mm-hmm. How much would San Diego County expect to receive from that if this bill is passed? How do these dollars typically get distri- distributed? Yeah. Well, uh, there is two ways uh, they can. They u- usually have two ways to distribute it. One is by formula based on population and two competitive. And I think in this case, I believe they're going to be a hybrid model. Uh, we can compete well. Uh, as you know, we've been talking about extensive expansion of our transit systems. Uh, uh, depend whether they're going to require that the project be shovel ready or not. Uh, but uh, if they also going to fund a uh, project in the environmental and, 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 and design. But we believe we are positioned better than any region probably in the country. What types of new public transit infrastructure is Sandak planning right now, and how much of those are shovel-ready? There is about a total $1.9 billion project uh, in the San Diego region that are shovel-ready. Uh, some of them uh, will we'll get into... Um, next generation rapid, some with improvement to stations, some with double tracking in, in the Los Angeles corridor, uh, doing some tunnels. Those are shovel ready. And there's about $1.9 billion of them are already about 119 projects altogether. In terms of the mega project, uh, like, for example, the purple line, uh, the, the blue line, the configuration of the whole fast, high-speed underground system, well, and some of them are not ready, not shovel ready, but will be shovel ready in a couple of years if we get the local funding. Uh, so I, I think depend how the funding is spelled out, we believe we are ready to compete now with shovel ready projects, but also compete in a couple of years for projects that are going to reshape uh, and reimagine the future of transit in the region. Biden's plan also includes $80 billion for intercity rail like Amtrak. Where could Sandag use that money? I mean, obviously, uh, we have the second busiest corridor in the country here uh, uh, called the Los Angeles Corridor, Los Angeles-San Luis Corridor that goes from San Diego all the way to San Luis Obispo. Uh, as you know, this corridor uh, is a lifeline for passenger movement and for goods movement. Again, the second busiest in the country after the Northeast Corridor. We believe this, we are ready, and more than ready, we are actually very appropriate for a national funding, because this is a corridor of national significance. So we think the Los Angeles Corridor is going to get significant uh, federal funding uh, to make this corridor, uh, you know, a, a real high-speed, fast uh, service. Uh, for example, right now, a trip from San Diego to Los Angeles takes about three hours and 30 minutes. That trip could be uh, reduced to less than two hours if we double track, we straighten the corridor, the Merrimar Cave, and we move the track off the bluff. So we think Los Angeles is going to do really well competing nationally. 
Biden wants to spend about $115 billion on roads and bridges, but the emphasis is meant to be on fixing them before making them wider to accommodate more cars. Is this the right approach? Absolutely. Uh, and, and that was our approach in our five big moves, uh, not a single mile of expansion, but a huge opportunity to add capacity to our highway system by pricing, doing improvements. Uh, and I think that's what, what uh, our president's plan is consistent with what we've been saying over the last two years. Sandag is considering some kind of local tax measure to fund a lot of the projects in its next transportation plan. Now, if this bill ultimately passes Congress, do you expect that Sandag would still need that local revenue or could the federal government just make that unnecessary? Uh, usually, you're more likely to compete for federal state dollars if you have local dollars on the table. That has been the case. That's why Sandag was successful in competing in the past. I expect the same thing to move forward again. Uh, so we expect the region to need local revenues, and these local revenues will bring almost $2.5 to every dollar, uh, or every local dollar. So it's a good deal for San Diegans, actually. You've said many times before that some of the highway widening projects that Sandag has had in its planning documents for many years simply won't happen because they're in conflict with the state's goal of reducing car travel and greenhouse gas emissions. When will we know exactly which of these highway projects are on the chopping block? By June, uh, we are releasing the draft regional transportation plan. And you're going to see clearly that... uh, no highway expansion project will move forward in this plan as a staff recommendation goes. Whether the board goes with it is, is yet to be seen. But by June, uh, you and your, uh, your, your listeners are going to see a very detailed list of the project that's going to move forward, and none of them will be uh, a highway expansion. There will be uh, highway capacity increases by pricing some, by using shoulders, for priority for buses and carpoolers by actually taking some existing infrastructure, combining it with with uh, with new ones to, to price two lanes like we did in the I-15. But you shouldn't have to wait long. Uh, in two months, you're going to see that. Most people in San Diego County still drive nowadays. Why should we yeah. not be investing our infrastructure dollars in ways that make driving better and more convenient? Wouldn't that help the most people? Just adding lanes is never going to be solving uh, um, the traffic problems. But managing congestion through pricing and other mechanism is. Uh, The latent demand kicks in when you add capacity. So therefore, I don't believe it's the right strategy to start thinking, expanding, even though 90% 90 of us drive, and we'll continue to drive probably. But having said that, we have an obligation to make sure whether, whether we drive or take transit, we have real options to do it. Uh, and not always go uh, when you have congestion, say, let's add the lane, because that doesn't work. That strategy didn't work when Houston built a 26-lane uh, freeway that became uh, one of the most congested in the country after a few months it opened. It doesn't work. Just adding lanes simply doesn't work. That was Hassan Krada, executive director of Sandag, speaking with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. Coming up on the podcast, building up the missing middle in the housing market. 
If you don't offer too much extra density, people aren't going to tear down the existing homes and build new because it's costly to tear down an existing structure. We'll talk about the movement to build housing for people who want to buy a home but can't yet afford a house. We'll have that and an update on studies regarding sexual assault in the military. That's next, just after the break. Cities from Sacramento to Berkeley are moving forward on zoning changes to encourage higher density housing, such as duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. But how much of a dent will these new options make in California's housing shortage? And will they even be affordable? Cap Radio's Chris Nichols reports. Construction crews are digging trenches for dozens of new homes in a subdivision in Winters, just outside Sacramento. A small fraction of them will be duplexes, what Laura Pope calls duets. She's a sales consultant for town development. Right here on this corner and the other corner, we'll have the two duets. So this first driveway... Pope says these two-unit homes with a shared wall will go for about $400,000 each. That's about 20% less than the standard single-family homes in the neighborhood. And she says it might make the difference for middle-income families, such as young couples trying to buy their first home. To be able to get into the Northern California housing market, you know, on a brand new home in a very desirable location under $500,000 is a unique situation. Developers in California tend to build two kinds of housing, either single-family homes or large apartment buildings. Cities want to add more of a third option, so-called missing middle housing, like duplexes and triplexes, to add more density in a way that fits the neighborhood. Right now, they can't. That's because most residential areas are zoned exclusively for single-family homes. Supporters say these missing middle options will cut down on sprawl and create more walkable communities, and they're hopeful they'll be more affordable, too. Housing expert Tom Davidoff of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver says they will be less expensive, but they still won't be in reach for everyone. The same structure divided into two. Definitely those two units sell for less than the bundled unit, and it allows more people to live in the neighborhood. Davidoff says he doesn't expect a surge in construction because there's not that much profit in turning a single-family home into a duplex. He says cities should zone for much greater density, such as apartment towers, to really solve the housing crunch. If you don't offer too much extra density, people aren't going to tear down the existing homes and build new because it's costly to tear down an existing structure. Many supporters of missing middle housing point to Minneapolis as a model. That city gained national attention in late 2018 when it became the first in the country to eliminate single-family zoning, followed shortly after by Portland. I asked housing advocate Margaret Kaplan of the Housing Justice Center in Minnesota whether she sees signs of new affordable homes in Minneapolis more than two years later. The answer to that is not much. Kaplan says in the first nine months of last year, Minneapolis issued just three permits for triplexes. But Kelly Snyder says the slow pace of production is not a reason to deny this change in California. Snyder teaches real estate development at San Jose State and works as a consultant in the industry. 
She says California cities should move forward with these new housing options because they won't cause the neighborhood disruptions many fear. We have seen in Portland and Minneapolis that this is not a dramatic change. She says there's a lot of other strategies to focus on, such as funding truly affordable housing, But for missing middle? Saying it's not worth doing is not an answer. It is worth doing. It won't alone solve a problem, but it's one more tool in the toolbox. In California, it may be several years before we know how well this tool works. And that was CAP Radio's Chris Nichols reporting from Sacramento. A new study has concluded that the cost of sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military extends beyond the victims. It's also causing troops to leave the service prematurely, hurting military readiness. From San Antonio, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. When Amber Davila joined the Army in 2011, she planned to stay in for the full 20 or until retirement. She took pride in her communication security job. It made her feel like part of a team and a greater good. I used to joke that I was going to eventually become the first female command sergeant major of the Army. That all changed when Davila was sexually assaulted by a fellow soldier in Korea. Even though she was terrified of being ostracized, she eventually reported her attacker, and he was discharged after a lengthy investigation. But for Davila, the ordeal wasn't over. You think you're okay, and then, you know, the commander says, um, you know, horseshoe on me, so everybody kind of moves in. Um... And then suddenly someone's brushing against me and I'm right back in that formation in Korea where this man is torturing me. And it just became overwhelming. She spiraled into anxiety and destructive behavior and spent more and more energy trying to appear fine. When it came time to re-enlist, she had a panic attack. And that's when I decided I, I couldn't do it anymore and that I needed to get out. Davila isn't alone in that decision. According to a new study by the RAND Corporation, sexual assault doubled the odds that a service member would leave the military within 28 months. And about a quarter of troops who were sexually harassed didn't re-up. Andrew Morrell is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND and the study's lead author. We all know, I I think, that uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment has tremendous costs to the individuals involved in it. Uh, But I think less attention has been paid to what the institutional costs are. Using Defense Department data, he tracked the careers of a group of service members who reported sexual assault or harassment. Then he used statistical analysis to figure out how their experiences translated to the entire force. Assaults were associated with about 2,000 more people leaving the military than would normally be expected. Sexual harassment contributed to the departure of an additional 8,000 service members. Most who left did so by choice, often sacrificing retirement and other benefits. They may not have felt like they had much choice if if it was a very toxic work environment, uh, but they weren't kicked out. After the killing of Specialist Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood in Central Texas, an independent review found that commanders weren't paying enough attention to sexual assault and harassment. In some cases, non-commissioned officers didn't encourage reporting and shamed victims. Morale says that's been a problem across the military, but he hopes framing sexual assault and harassment as a retention problem will get their attention. Well, I hope that they use it to emphasize the importance of leadership promoting a command climate that is not permissive with respect to sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, kinds of behaviors. You know, I think it's been hard to get those messages all, all the way down in, you know, into the junior enlisted ranks. 
President Biden recently ordered a 90-day commission to pursue solutions to sexual assault in the military. One of its goals is to figure out how to reorient the culture against sex crimes. Lynn Rosenthal, a longtime advocate for survivors of gender violence, heads the commission. She told reporters in February that she'll organize listening sessions with service members, especially survivors. This commission says to that service member, you do belong in this military. You belong. And it's our job to make this climate safe for you to be here. The commission is slated to give recommendations to the president this summer. That's too late for former service members like Amber Davila. Since leaving the military in 2015, she started work for the Pink Berets, a women veterans organization in San Antonio. It supports survivors of military sexual trauma and advocates for policy change. But she says she feels a lingering grief about her service, especially when talking with friends whose army careers have taken off. That was Carson Frame reporting from San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.